Okay, let's see if we can't uh, answer some of these here. The New Testament canon was in widespread doubt until the 4th century. I don't like the word widespread. Right. Yeah, and that's that, that yeah, you, you picked up the, the word here. I mean, there's, like we said last time, there, there was perhaps no official list that was uh, universally recognized before the 4th century, but that doesn't mean that the canon was in widespread doubt. There just wasn't an official list. So, yeah, that was intended to be false. The reason I put that on there is to sort of... But I think sometimes people think, you know, the Bible was in a state of flux. There was a big question mark for 400 years, and it really that really wasn't the case. Number two, the perspicuity of the Scriptures means that the central message of the Bible is clear enough for any person with a rudimentary understanding of human language to understand. True. True. Yeah, it's true. I, I sometimes make a really long true statement because they say the long ones are false and the short ones are true. So. <laughs> the answer is destruction, wasn't it? Was that? Wasn't the answer destruction? You said a word when you didn't know what it was. Oh, oh, what? The one time you were... Oh, well, that, yeah, that's just a vocabulary <laughs> thing, so, yeah. So what were the three biblical criteria for canonicity that helped the church narrow down the options when trying to identify the canon? Apostolicity, orthodoxy, and catholicity. Okay, and what do those mean? Orthodoxy means it can't, it doesn't contradict itself. It's, no, no books contradict other books, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Apostle tied into. Okay, so apostles somehow tied with the writing, and then Catholicity. Universally. Yeah, it's universally or more or less universally accepted by the church. Of course, we said that that doesn't give us the exact twenty-seven. So what? What brings us to the exact twenty-seven? Number four. What's the validating validating criterion for Catholic uh, for canonicity? I had Christ quoted Old Testament scripture as one, but that's not the twenty-seven. No. Internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Right. And then that uh, was that corollary of inspiration. Right. The, the corollary from inspiration tells us that we almost certainly got the right canon. Uh, but the but I'm lo- I was looking for the other uh, that there's a uniform testimony of the Holy Spirit to the identity of the text and uh, that was pretty much validates these uh, these 27 books specifically. Okay. Anything else to talk about there on can- uh, can- uh, canonicity? I have also re- Revelation speaks to the close. Yeah, that definitely does that. It speaks to the close, but does it does it speak to the what the canon is? What the canon is is the probably the issue. Okay, our last topic for tonight, and I just want to uh, point out here. I mean, we we've got three pages left in the in the notes proper. Uh, it might take us half the time. I'm, I'm sort of still. Trying to de- I'm debating in my mind what exactly to cover in dispensationalism when we get there. Uh, probably have maybe 20 minutes to do a real quick survey of that. But uh, Bill has made available the notes from when I taught the, the, the longer class uh, a couple of years ago here for, for an institute thing. And uh, I guess there's audio files with it, so you can both listen and use the notes if you have a... Uh, deep interest in looking at that further. Okay, so we're not going to get to it in any any detailed fashion, maybe just a few comments about it. But let's talk about illumination, and I want to spend some time here, because I think this is a, a widely misunderstood uh, topic here in bibliology, so I want to make sure we know what this idea of illumination is. Um, how is it that the Holy Spirit helps us in the reading of the scriptures and uh, I think there's a lot of 
erroneous ideas about what the Holy Spirit does uh, when we're reading the Bible. Uh, some of them, perhaps, I could I would say, well, maybe I suppose he could do that, but I don't think that's what these texts are saying. So now there's this, you know, the idea that he'll remind you of Bible verses. Again, that, that the verse there is not about illumination, but rather this idea that you know when when it comes to the you know when it comes time to write the scripture, the Holy Spirit will prompt the apostles to recall what he said while he was with them. So it's probably not a statement there that God's going to remind the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as I sometimes call it. I, I don't think it's it's maintained there. There's others who would you know look at this and say, I was reading and the Holy Spirit suddenly helped me to understand the Bible. Sometimes people are just speaking using the wrong kind of language. Sometimes, though, they I think they imagine that God is sort of magically entering into their head and uh, helping them to understand the meaning of the text. And we're going to see that that's probably not what the Holy Spirit is doing. So let's see if we can't uh, tease out some of this here. Uh, I'll give my definition, which sort of tips my hand right up front, but then I'll have to defend it here. Illumination, I say here, is a regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit that he does to regenerate people, whereby he convinces the believer that the Bible is the word of God and makes him favorably inclined to yielding to it. So I have two elements there. We already talked about the one with canonicity. There's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that helps believers to identify the Bible as the word of God, so they recognize the voice of God. And then a second part here, and this is usually what goes under the label of illumination, is God makes us favorably inclined to yielding to it, perhaps we could add here, to applying it. Okay, uh, And uh, that's something that usually only believers will do. I mean, unbelievers read the Bible all the time, but they don't believe it's true, and they don't attempt to you know, bring their lives into alignment with what it says. And that seems to be what the Holy Spirit is doing in the illuminating work, and we'll see if we can't defend that. The need for illumination here, uh, let's put this there, uh, put this out here, and then we'll make an explanation. Having a written revelation from God, preserved, issued in one's language, canonized, is still not enough to complete the communication of divine truth to men, and that is because of depravity. Okay. Depravity is such that people may see the Word of God, may read the Word of God, may even understand the Word of God, but they regard it as foolishness. They, they think it's poppycock. And so something has to happen to the depraved mind to make him favorably inclined to yielding to it, and that is regeneration, although there seems to be something that is ongoing in the process of illumination. So regeneration is a one-time event in which people are rendered inclined towards God. But then the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit seems to be an ongoing work, not a supernatural work, but an ongoing work uh, whereby uh, people are uh, people continuously, when they read the Bible, uh, believers will read it with a view to, uh, to applying it and to embracing it. Okay, So it's an ongoing work. So I say here, because of the supernatural, infinite, and pure nature of Scripture, and because of the finiteness of sinful men, there must be a further work of God to overcome the experience of the natural man, who ordinarily, uniformly exchange the truth of God for a lie. Okay, so what has something has to happen to an individual so that they no longer exchange the truth of God, which they have, for a lie and embrace it as truth instead. Okay. So let's look at a couple of texts here, three texts, but really the first one is the one we're probably going to spend the most time on. That's in 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to start in verses 4 and 5. I'll explain why that's true, and then I'll pick it up in verse 14 again. So, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest 
on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. So he's talking about the transmission process, and he's talking about his delivery of the word of God to them. Okay, And he says, I did not do this with you know, powerful rhetorical devices, uh, slick sales techni- techniques that you know just sort of deceive or wow someone into accepting what the salesman says. Okay, because if he did this, then the power of the word wouldn't be in the word itself, but in him. Now, he's 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 the he's the he's the slick salesman. He gets the credit for making the sale. Okay. And so he says, when I delivered the word of God to you, I did it in, in something of a simple way. It's not as though he's just bumbling about. But he, but he delivers it in a rather simple way and does not try to soften the ugliness of what it says. You know, it's, it's ugly to talk about a crucifixion and a crucified Jesus as somehow the hero. It, it just, it's distasteful. And he talks about it being a stumbling block and, a, and, and foolishness. But he didn't hesitate to give this simple and ugly message because it wasn't the, 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 the delivery that was going to persuade people. It was God who was going to persuade people. It's going to be the, the Holy Spirit that does this. Now, then he goes into this, this parenthesis, you know, verses 6 to 13. We talked about this, how this is... You know, his is sort of an aside here, talking about his his receipt of the word of God as an, as 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 the inspired word, um, and how he combined spiritual thoughts with spiritual words and expressed spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. And so he talks a little bit about the inspiration process, but then he picks up on the topic that he was that he had started here in verses four and five again in verse fourteen. So I think. I, whether you want to, you know, draw them in there, but I think there's sort of a big parenthesis that starts in verse 16 and runs to verse 13. Very important material, but it's parenthetical to the point he's making uh, throughout chapter two. Okay, so he picks it up and says, "The man without the spirit." Remember, this has got to be a demonstration of the spirit's power, and not the human speaker's power. So, the man without the spirit the empowering spirit at work in him, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Because they're foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That is, by means of the Holy Spirit, they, the, 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 the significance of these words are discerned and a proper appraisal of the word takes place. But the spiritual man, which in context here should be defined as the man with the spirit, okay, the man with the indwelling, illuminating spirit, makes, I think we can imply here, makes correct judgments about all things, even though he's not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ, Okay, so I think that's even a, a, another way of putting it this way. We have the spirit within us. We have the mind of Christ. That is, we think like Christ. We think like a regenerate person because we have the Holy Spirit within us. Okay, so that's sort of our main passage here on on the uh, on the uh, on, on this text here. Now, I do want to say something about this one word in here. It says here, um, he cannot understand them. Perhaps one of the more confusing lines in this verse. Because it sort of gives us the impression that when an unbeliever opens up the Bible, it's just gobbledygook on the page. There's just chicken scratch. It's indiscernible. It can't, can't, be, can't be translated. And of course, we know that it's not true. Even an unbeliever can open up his Bible and read the words and say, you know, I... I took English in high school, and I know how to read, and I know what I know what the words mean. So, uh, probably we should not understand this to mean that they cannot make head or tails of the words. They know the meaning of the word, uh, but there's a distinction that's sometimes made in Bible study methods between the meaning of Scripture and the significance of Scripture. Okay, the meaning of the Scripture is locked up in the words 
Okay, that's one of the principal axioms of hermeneutics, right? The the, the, the meaning is lodged in the text. The words contain the meaning. It's not some sort of an encounter we have above the text. Okay, the words are right. The, the words contain the meaning. So an unbeliever can understand what the Bible says. Sometimes can do so even better than a believer can. You know, if he's a careful reader, um, and, and you know, perhaps if he knows Greek and Hebrew, and perhaps uh, you know has access to some good commentaries, probably can come up with the meaning uh, better than the believer who just sort of reads it along and sort of takes a surface meaning. You know. Would his so, problem be applying it then? Yeah, his problem is not with the meaning, but with the significance. So, yeah, I, I always think of James Barr. He's a a well-known, call him an unbeliever. He's probably new orthodox here. Uh, but here, here's a guy who really did a good job with hermeneutics. I mean, if you read some of his stuff, he sounds sounds just like a dispensationalist when he's talking about how to read your Bible, how to read literally. You know, it, I mean, it just really sounds good. But then, at the end of it, I, I don't have it here, but I have a have some I have some other places where I've cited him. And at the end of the day, he says, "Okay, this is this is what it literally means, and this is what the words indicate." And we can't go to these these strange ideas that these words are symbols for something else, and that and that uh, you know these, these words can all be spiritualized. We shouldn't read the Bible that way. And you know, you're just saying Amen, Amen. Uh, but then at the end of end of the article, which I referenced there, he basically said, "But but it's not true." <laughs> okay, he knows how to read it. He know he knows exactly what the words mean. But he says, "But the words aren't true." Okay, so here's a guy who understands meaning, but he doesn't catch the significance. He, he, he doesn't recognize as these as the word of God. So why does he spend time in it? Ah, because it's a, it's a, well, a couple of reasons. One, it's a piece of classic literature that's well worth reading. That's, that's number one. But number two, and we're, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the New Orthodox approach to the Bible. They have something of an elevated view of the Bible because... They, they 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 sort of view it as the collection, a collection of how whole, the, the, of holy men in history and their encounter with God. It's valuable to read it, um, and perhaps in reading it we can have our own encounter with God. But we shouldn't think of these words as as necessarily true word for word. This is what this is this is someone's perception. Perhaps of what happened, uh, but not it's it's not necessarily what actually happened. It's and it's definitely not the word of God because you know in, in New Orthodox thought you know the word can't be the God's word cannot be contained in human words. That's it's an inadequate medium. So there's some value to it. It sort of helps us see how other people have viewed God and perhaps gives us an appreciation for God along the way. But it. But it's but it it's not an inerrant body of material. We talk about that with inerrancy, right? So it's not an inerrant body of of material. Um, so that's perhaps why they they would uh, they would read it and appreciate it to some degree. Okay. So it's not as though unbelievers can't understand what's there, but they don't embrace it. As true, in fact, I think that's the word here: the accepting of the things that come from the Spirit of God. It's more the idea of embracing or welcoming. He doesn't; they don't; they don't see it for what it is. This is God's word. This is something that we should embrace and 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 you know incorporate into our very lives. And that's that's the tension that the unbeliever has. Okay. Did you have thought you were going to say there? You seem to no, no. Okay. I just. I was just thinking that's a question that they've asked that people often who are Christians in churches don't. It's hard to understand why would people devote themselves to the study of the Bible if they don't believe it. But besides just the neo-orthodox, there's plenty of people who don't just believe in God at all who do. And that goes back to a tradition of our country 
Western Europe was founded by people who, you know, believed in the Bible. And so universities were established, Oxford and Cambridge, Harvard and Yale, by people who believed the Bible and taught the Bible. But then liberalism comes in. (laughs) So I was just watching a program last night on PBS about civilization. But you've got professors at Harvard who teach religion and other things and talk about the Bible or Oxford or Cambridge. It's a career. It's an interesting study, you know, like you study Egyptology or any other thing. They just study it because they're interested in religion. Yeah, we might do the same thing. We might read Plato's Republic, for instance. It's a very interesting book. Yeah. Right. Helpful book, actually. But... uh, but at the same time, I and I read it. There's some things I'd say, well, that's not true. That's silly. Yeah, no, that that's that's ridiculous. Um, because I, I view it as just an ordinary book. Might have some really helpful insights along the way, but it's just an ordinary book. It's I don't think of the whole thing as being somehow perfect. Uh, a parallel would be uh, people who are not Muslims who are experts in Islam, and in this program. They were, I know it was the lady and the guy and you could clearly sit, tell you know she's an expert in Islam but she's not a Muslim <laughs> so she's interested in studying Islam and so I'm sure Muslims probably say the same thing why is this lady studying Islam so heavily when she doesn't even believe it you know? well she doesn't but she's studying it as a religion and, you know. yeah I guess they might want to study it because it's impact on society it's important same thing with the Bible. The Bible has a tremendous impact in Christianity, so you study it sure. even though it. Uh, but you've had some men that have tried to prove that, that it wasn't true at all, and they've been converted. Like C.S. Lewis, right? True. And he converted because he thought it was. And there's others that tried to. Yeah, there's others who have approached the study of the Bible skeptically and right. come to come to, come to believe yeah, because true. the word, just reading it. God the Spirit can use that to regenerate people, you know. And uh, it has happened, sir. Sure. William Ramsey is that. I was thinking of Ram- I was thinking, your mind, I was thinking of Ramsey, too. <laughs> a famous archaeologist <laughs> yeah. from the early 1900s who basically went to, took up archaeology to prove the Bible wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he went mean, through Turkey and looked at all of Paul's journeys. He ended up writing a bunch of books showing the historicity of, of Acts and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, Lee Strobel had the case for Christ. Yeah. He sets out to this group because his wife becomes a believer. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, this, is, this is a bunch of hooey. Yeah, yeah. Good. Let's look at a couple of more texts, and then we'll, we'll sort of try and debunk the uh, sort of the popular understanding of illumination before we establish what it exactly means. So first, first John 2 starting in verse 20 you have an anointing where there was an unction there but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know that's actually how the line ends so the implication is you know the truth uh, but it just said all of you know I do not write to you because you do not know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. I can skip down to verse 27. I'm writing, 26, I, I'm writing these things to, to you who are try, about those who are trying to lead you astray. But as for you, this anointing, this unction, which you received from him, remains in you. So there, there's the idea that it comes at regeneration, but it abides, it remains. It's an ongoing work. And you do not need anyone to teach you But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has been taught, you remain in him. Okay, so here again we find this idea that there's an anointing, this illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, so that all of you know, and that's why I put the truth in brackets, even though it appears in most English translations or something like that. Uh, but that's actually absent in the, it's, it's supplied just to sort of make sense of what is it you know. Uh, but there's a, a sense there that perhaps the, uh, we could leave that out. All of you know, you all have a, a grasp of what's going on here with the Bible. You all recognize, you all know 
uh, the word of God for what it is. And this anointing remains in you so that you don't need anyone to teach you. That The implication is not here that you don't ever need teachers, period. The whole, the whole corpus of scripture militates against that. I mean, there's obviously there's teachers within the church. But the point is that you don't need someone to come along to convince you that the Bible is true and, and you know, tell you how to apply it. You can pick up on that. So uh, we read simple command, you know, children obey your parents. Okay, well, we all know what that means. But that doesn't mean we're inclined to obey it, you know. Uh, there's 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 something inside of us that says I don't really want to do that. But then, then as as believers, we become convinced that yes, I should I should obey, I should honor my parents. But then we sort of have to ask ourselves, well, how do we do that? Okay, and so this is this is a this is a question that the Christian continues to ask. The unbeliever doesn't keep asking this question because he doesn't. He's not, he's not buying it in the first place, so he, he sort of stops with, okay, I know what it means. But the Christian comes along and says, okay, what does that mean for me? Because it might mean something different for someone else. You know, than if you're a small child, means something different than if you're somebody my age who has older parents. It looks a little bit different. Nonetheless, there is a, a, a way to apply that that's specific to me. Yeah, you know, just because I, I don't, you know, say go to bed at ten o'clock. You know, I, I don't have. You know, that, that's not what I have to do. Nonetheless, there is an honoring that, even though they're uh, eighty years old, I still have to honor them to a degree. I think there's a sense in which obedience is a word that can be used too. But I think the idea of honoring probably works a little bit better for that for that situation. And so the the Holy Spirit comes along and teaches me, uh, if I can use the word here, this unction, teaches me what I ought to do. How, how is it that I'm going to implement, and how am I going to obey this command that, that God has given to me? So so that's that's what the, this unction does. It's not as though you don't need teachers in an absolute sense, but you can figure out exactly what that means in your context, what exactly that looks like. Okay? The last text here is in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's a prayer here of Paul for the Thessalonians. And he says, I thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. word illumination or unction isn't used here, but perhaps one of the better descriptions of what the Holy Spirit does in illumination. It causes us to accept the word of God received from the apostle, not as the word of men, but for what it really is. They recognize what the word of God is, and we we submit to it and, and, and obey it. Okay? So these are these are some texts here that speak of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Now, about thirty, well, almost forty years ago now, there was a there was sort of a little tiff between two fellows. One fellow by the name of Daniel Fuller, and another by the name of Millard Erickson. Did that, that name ring a bell? Millard Erickson okay. wrote, wrote a systematic theology of the Baptists. He's uh, he's retired now, but he finished up his career just a couple of years ago at Southwestern. He still lives down there, but uh, he's no longer actively teaching. But he's still, he's still, he was just at, just at ETS, Evangelical Theological Society, about a year ago, and still, still a sharp guy. So, um, quite, a, quite a theologian. Uh, but there was a debate between the two of them about the nature of illumination. Um, uh, Erickson's understanding was that when the Holy Spirit illuminates the mind, he actually causes us to understand the Word of God better than an unbeliever. So an, a Christian can read the Word of God and, I don't know if you can say, sort of reads between the lines uh, more 
more meaning, more implications than an unbeliever could possibly ever find. So the Holy Spirit helps him to discover what the word means. Where Daniel Fuller sort of comes along and says, no, no, that's not how it works. Uh, The Holy Spirit does not give us the meaning. The meaning's in the text. Uh, What the Holy Spirit does is causes us to be, as we've said here, inclined towards the Word of God, to embrace it for what it is, and to and to and to apply it. Okay. And so let, let's see. And I think there's just an awful lot of people. And you can pick this up sort of in testimonies when people talk about, you know, I was reading the Bible and I saw something I never saw. For the Holy Spirit illumined my mind. You know, Holy Spirit gave me information that I never had before. The Holy Spirit caused me to see something that wasn't, you know, wasn't there. Well, let's see if we can't sort of uh, debunk that that understanding, and uh, and then defend the uh, correct understanding. What I think is the correct understanding. So, what illumination does not do? Okay, illumination does not impart new revelation. Okay, it's not as though you're reading the Bible; it's inadequate as it stands, and so the Holy Spirit gives you more data, more information. The scriptures are complete. We've said that, right? leaving no need for any additional special revelation. The only thing that's lacking is a mind that's open to accept the revelation that's already there. So that's the need. The great need is to overcome depravity, not to give us more information. We've got the information all right there. It's just changing the mind to accept the information. Secondly, illumination does not supply hidden or deeper meanings that elude unbelievers. I say because of some unfortunate translation work in 1 Corinthians 2, might one might read some of the versions as suggesting that the meaning of the text of Scripture is lost to a person. He cannot understand it without the Holy Spirit. But this understanding flies in the fact, in the face of the uh, grammatical historical principle of interpretation. The meaning is in the words, and how do you get at the meaning? You you use grammar, syntax, history, context to put it all together to find out exactly what it means. So the locus of meaning is not in, in if, if there's deeper hidden deeper or hidden meaning, then the locus of meaning is the human mind rather than the text itself. okay So at, at, at some level, we end up not needing to buy, right? okay because I read the Bible, I can't get what I need out of it. But as I'm reading, some miracle happens, and so God inserts information into my head, some deeper or hidden meaning that wasn't there, and now I know what to do. Okay, well, eventually we're going to ask the question, well, why bother this cryptic Bible here? Why don't we just have the, why don't we just have the direct encounter with, with the Holy Spirit, and then I'll, I can know more carefully and better what what I ought to do. You you hear people say that all the time. The Holy Spirit told me. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't tell people anything apart from the reading of the Scripture. The meanings in the Word, the Holy Spirit causes us to come along and embrace it and apply it. But He doesn't give us new data. Uh, So to think in those terms is to think incorrectly. And to really destroy the whole principle of hermeneutics. Yeah, that's that's you know, the, the meanings in the text. So an unbeliever, I say, can in fact learn the laws of language, grammar, and emerge with an understanding of the text meaning that is equal to, even superior than that of a believer. But what an unbeliever cannot do is welcome the Bible eagerly as absolutely authoritative and personally applicable. Thirdly here, another thing that illumination does not do. It does not delegate authority to the Bible. The self-attesting Bible is authoritative and true because God wrote it. We went through this already. The Holy Spirit is not necessary to establish the authority or even to prove its authority. That stands already. God wrote it. Instead, the work of the Holy Spirit illumines the darkened mind to accept the abundantly clear self-testimony of Scripture that it already possesses. Fourthly here, illumination does not grant perspicuity or clarity to the Scripture. It's not as though 
the the Bible is difficult to understand for unbelievers. And then when you get saved, we say, "Oh, now I get it. I understand. I understand it well." Uh, it doesn't it doesn't add clarity here? The clarity that the Bible possesses is innate. It can't be activated by external forces. It's clear as it stands. And then finally here, illumination does not remove, and this should sort of follow, it does not remove the need to develop hermeneutical skills, skills at writing the Bible that are essential to uncovering the meaning of the Bible. Okay. The fact that the believer has no need for anyone to teach him does not mean that he can forgo the hard work of exegesis or neglect the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. In fact, John is saying quite the opposite. He's saying that all believers have the equipment to do exegesis, now use it. Okay, Go to church. Listen to your pastor. Listen to your teachers. Read the Bible. You know, Work hard to understand what the meaning is. Uh, we don't detect truth by uh, by means of the uh, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Spirit, with without a secret key to meaning possessed by one who some spiritually elite person, is 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 something that just is not part of the Scriptures. I think that's I think that's sometimes uh, there there are unscrupulous leaders of the church that sometimes sometimes will treat the Bible that way. Well, you just you're just un- incapable of understanding. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church has made a real industry of that, right? Okay, you you know, don't bother reading it. Just go to the church, and the priest will tell you what it means. In fact, the, uh, we come to the end of the Middle Ages, and we find that the whole that the that the that the priests are actually de- deliberately attempting to keep the Bible out of the hands of people for fear that they will read it and find out that the Roman Catholic tradition is wrong okay so they're actually trying to 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 conceal it because because the average plowman if i can use luther's language here the average plowman can pick up a bible and ought to be able to pick up the bible and know what it means and see that the roman catholic church is wrong okay and so there there have been those who've made an industry of saying you know if you're if you're if you're not enlightened if you're not one of the, you know, the ecclesiastical elites, uh, then just just don't don't bother trying to read the Bible. We'll tell you what it says, and uh, that's just uh, that's a real problem. And uh, I think it again flies in the face of what of what we're seeing here. Illumination means that we can read it. We can know what it means. We can we can apply it on on our own. Okay. Other th- uh, thoughts on that. So hopefully we're trying to disabuse any thought that uh, the Holy Spirit comes along and gives you the meaning of the Scripture uh, that you couldn't have found by ordinary means. So what does illumination do? Well, I've got three points here. and sort of said them all already, but let's formalize it. Illumination imparts certainty. That the self-authenticating words of Scripture are, in fact, true, authoritative, and from God. This accounts for the determination of the Bible's identity, which is canonicity. That's the the uh, the uh, internal testimony of the of the Holy Spirit that that causes us to recognize the voice of God, and then also the acknowledgement of its absolute authority causes us to say, "Yes, this is the Word of God, and I must obey it. I must submit to it." which sort of bleeds into the second point here. Illumination removes the native hostility that depraved people have towards the word of God. We know that the depraved mind is hostile towards God and hostile towards his law. Romans 8, 7 says that. Cannot submit themselves to the things of the Spirit of God nor and are not able to do so. They're resistant to truth, preferring falsehood. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, we find in Romans 1. This cannot be overcome with the use of independent evidences. You know, try and, I'm going to try and prove that there really was Noah. He did build an ark, and there was a flood and all that. Now, that's, that, that, that won't break through. It's only by the Holy Spirit that the believer can accept or welcome the Word of God to know the word of God for what it really is, to use 
Paul's language in Second Timothy, Second Thessalonians, or appraise it. That is positively evaluate, appreciate, and apply it. So that's the that's the primary understanding here of what illumination does on a day to day basis. Note here that this isn't a miracle. Okay, I, I, I just critiqued a book by John Piper. John Piper wrote a book here just last year um, on on reading the. The title is "Reading the Bible Supernaturally." In some ways, it's a helpful book because he's what he's trying to convince people to do is to read the Bible with a view to application, not just to read it generally, not just read the words, but to actually read it with a view to application. That is to to take advantage of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and actually be actively thinking as as we read. Now, what does this mean to me? What should I what should I do with this information? So, so reading reading the Bible with a view to application. And, and so far as the book says that, I think it's a very helpful book. But what he describes it is as here it's in the title of the book is reading the Bible supernaturally. And he actually goes along and says that there is a an iterative miracle that as you're reading the Holy Spirit performs a series of miracles over and over and over again. Sometimes he does the miracle, you're illumined. Sometimes he doesn't do the miracle and you're not illumined. And so there's this series of ongoing miracles that have to take place. They're supernatural. That's not really what we've got here. In fact, my, my, my explanation of this would be once we are regenerated, it's no longer supernatural to read the Bible for what it is. It's the new natural, okay? Uh, Because we are a new man, the way we read now uh, is with a view to understanding this, to submitting to the Word of God. So it's not as though it's an ongoing miracle. There's a miracle of regeneration that converted you from a depraved person to a regenerate person, and now your regenerate person moves on in his life and has... New abilities, new powers, new strength that it never had before, and one of those abilities is to read the Bible for what it is, you know, to discern the meaning. Of it. So it's it's not a miracle per se that that is that is going on, but rather it's the new natural. It's it's the new way that a that a believer thinks. So it's not a it's not a miracle, okay, but it's it's something that's an ongoing work of God. In a regenerate heart, does that make sense? Does that follow? Say, doesn't it? Sounds like as a Christian, you're building on a firm foundation, and you're adding to it or building on it. Right. Yeah. It's this is it's an interesting. It's sort of a tip of a of a problem that 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 is is a big problem in evangelical thinking. There's so much of an emphasis on justification. What God does to you from outside, He, it, you know, we, we always make a big point of of justification not actually changing me. It's a it's a declaration of my righteousness. Not a it does, God doesn't make me righteous in justification. That's that's the Catholic error that God is in a process of making me uh, righteous so that I can qualify for heaven. You know, way down the line. Okay. And so, so the Protestants and, and evangelicals specifically have tended to make a big deal about justification and have, I think, diminished the import of regeneration. When we are regenerated, something does happen to us. Okay? We're justified and we're regenerated, and both of those things happen at the same time. Now, our regeneration is not something that Makes us that qualifies us for heaven. Okay, our the, the 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 holiness that we start to develop because of our new nature does not does not make us more more qualified for heaven. The qualification for heaven is the work of Jesus Christ done on the cross outside of me and and put to my account. But that doesn't mean that regeneration is nothing. Regeneration is very important. It actually changes me. It, it it's it's a it's a question I always ask, and, and anytime there's a there's an ordination council, I, I always ask this question: Are we still are we still totally depraved? Are Christians still totally depraved? And and usually, you know, they 
usually you've got a bunch of Calvinists here. Absolutely, yeah, we're still totally depraved. And the answer is no, we're no longer totally depraved. In the sense that we are capable of pleasing God because we're regenerate. We have a new nature within us. We have a capacity and ability to please God, not perfectly, but we have an ability to please God. And I think I think that's what we have here with with illumination. It's it's not as though we're we're somehow you know super Christians, but we are we are possessed of an ability to open up the Word of God, understand what it says, submit to it, and 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 do what it says. Okay, and that's not a miracle per se. It was a miracle that gave me the new nature. But what I continue to do in illumination is not properly described as a miracle in my mind. How does that correlate with sanctification? So just that very closely. Process. Yeah, very closely. So sanctification, um, what is the energy of sanctification? Uh, I'll ask you, what, what, what is it that makes sanctification possible? Obedience. Okay, that, I mean, that, that is what sanctification is. But what makes obedience possible? That regenerative work. Yeah, regeneration is the foundation of sanctification. Um, again, uh, this is totally off, off topic here, but this Keswick understanding that says when you get saved, nothing happens to you, uh, and you have to have a second work of the Holy Spirit to start your sanctification process. That's some consecration event, you dedicate your life to Jesus. Um, but again, there's, there's that same emphasis. There's this emphasis on justification. At justification, nothing happens. So, so, so don't imagine anything happened when you got justified. And so what happens after you're justified? Well, you try and limp along, but nothing's happened. You haven't changed. And so there has to be some sort of extra event later on, a consecration event that sort of jump-starts the Christian life. But that, again, that's, that's where the error comes in. Now, that's not what jump-starts. What starts the Christian walk? Is regeneration that comes right, right next to sanct, uh, right next to justification. We're justified, we're sanct, uh, and regenerated at the same time. And because we are regenerated, we begin to grow immediately. Now, we don't become perfect, but we begin to grow immediately because we have the Spirit of God inside of us, and we have the capacity now to grow as believers. So, yeah, I, I think that there's there's great tie-in. So as we grow. Can our understanding of Scripture grow, or is that only because of the work we've been studying? Well, uh, sanctification. I mean, there's, there's there, I think it's not a simple question you're asking. Um, what what regeneration does to us is causes us to spend more time in the Bible and and look for the meaning more intently than we did before. It causes us then to say, you know, I've I've read this verse multiple times, but I've never attempted to put it into practice. I'm going to start doing that now. And so there is a sense in which we do grow in our knowledge of what the Bible says because we read it more. And also we we grow in our sanctification because we're starting to implement more and more of the scripture in in our daily walk. So yes, there, there is a growth. It's it's not as though it's a, an all or nothing kind of deal. There is there is growth in that uh, that takes place for for a believer. Same with sanctification. We we grow in our obedience. We grow in our knowledge. We grow in our appreciation of of the Word of God. All of those things are true for a believer. But it's not a series of miracles. That was that was really the only point I was trying to make here. It's not a series of miracles that keep that is occurring here. There are one miracle. You were regenerated, and from that point on, you're you're using the new set of 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 attributes that you have because you are a new creature in Christ to to make progress in the Christian law. Anything to add to that? Sort of our uh, we've sort of been tag teaming on that for a, a while. <laughs> Okay, so we're, we did number two here. So, illumination imparts certainty, removes the native hostility, and then finally, letter C, we've sort of implied this already. It would seem that the acceptance of the inerrant authority and unity of the scripture supplies the basis 
for the var- valid correlation of truth into a unified system. It's not to say that illumination improves your theological skills per se, but it makes a believer want to do this. Um, and so, so what we tend to do, at, to, because we're believers, now we actually attempt to, to put all this together, to harmonize it all together into a concatenated whole, uh, and and then and then obey it. Okay, so we see the in, in the the uh, what the unbeliever sees is inco- incoherent, self-contradictory, and beyond the pale of correlation. Now we see it as something that can be correlated. It is coherent. It is not contradictory at all. And so we, we put it all together into a harmonized whole in a way that very few unbelievers ever do. Okay. Thoughts on that? Any final thoughts on illumination, what that does for us? My last point is interpretation. I only have four lines here just because you have a whole class on that, right? Hermeneutics. Um, uh, but there is a sense in which we can uh, speak to uh, interpretation as giving to us a sort of a comprehensive look at what the Bible is about. And so that's, I've got 15 minutes to talk about dispensationalism, but to me that's the centerpiece of what we're trying to do. Once we, once we have the Bible in our hands and we can read it and correlate it, now we're a tr- we attempt to find out what the Bible is about. What's the central message of the Bible? What's the flow of the Bible? What's the storyline that is there? And where is it going? Um, and and the model that is developed here as to how it all fits together, uh, we call dispensationalism. There's other models for putting the Bible together. Covenant theology is a, is a perhaps the, one of the best-known ones. But dispensationalism is what I've understood to be the, uh, the, the way to sort of organize the Bible. Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but uh, for now, what it seems to suggest that as you work your way through the Scriptures, the, the central message of the Bible is not so much that God is saving people as it is that God is actually putting together a kingdom. It involves saving people. Saving people is a means to the end of populating the kingdom. But what we find in the scripture is that God is building a kingdom. Okay? As we work our way through the scripture, we find first of all that you know we, we start on day one with a dominion mandate. You get a kingdom. You know, uh, Psalm 8 says that Adam was was made as as he was given dominion he was he was made the king of the earth effectively uh, and so he's told you okay you rule the earth this is this is your kingdom uh, you, you answer to me but this is your kingdom he tells them what to do it's called a dominion mandate he gives them instructions on how to you know subdue the earth and and, and structure things he gives them family you know men women children. Um, and tells them, you know, exactly what you're supposed to do with the world. There's really nothing about redemption here at all, because there's no need for it at this point. He's, he's fun. Um, and so this, this is really the, the, this is really what we're looking for is a, is a utopian kingdom in which people are doing precisely and exactly what they're supposed to do in God's world. Okay. But of course, this doesn't last very long, right? Okay, so man falls, Adam falls, he sins, and so now we have this twofold idea going on at the same time. We've got the kingdom that is this, this, this you know, overriding, overarching idea here is that God is the king, and we as humans are sort of the under kings. We're kings underneath of him. But in order to get back to that utopian kind of arrangement, or actually one that's even better than Eden. We have to also see a redemptive element here. And so we find that in Genesis 3, right? Okay, there's this promise of a seed uh, that if you, you know, if you believe this, you'll be counted righteous, you'll be counted righteous, you'll be, you'll, you'll sort of get back on the right track. Okay. And you'll, you'll be in, you'll be in a place of divine favor. Um, and so there's, there's a means here of being 
put back where 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 you're supposed to be. Of course, this is all informal at this point. And that next next thing that comes up on the on the timeline is a Noahic covenant. There's nothing redemptive about this one either. Okay, this is a formal covenant where God explains. Okay, this is this is what you do. It's a, really a lot of repeat from Genesis two, with a few a few additions. Okay, now you're going to have governmental structures uh, with uh, with authority given to men to up to and including capital punishment, right? By by men, man shall your blood be shed if you kill someone. Okay, right. Um, and so we we find this idea of a kingdom, this this rule of the of the universe established here. People are put in charge of this because they're in the image of God. Okay. But of course, even after the flood takes place, that's that it doesn't solve the 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 main problem. Okay, the main problem is sin. It still hasn't been resolved. So now we go back to the redemptive sort of side of things, the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant you know, it narrows down the scope of this seed, this promise of a of a redeemer, this messianic figure here, and and says it's going to come. It's going to come through Abraham and the nation that comes out of his loins. So, if you want to be right with God and be re- restored to a place uh, where 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 God wants you to be, you're going to have to you're going to have to buy in. Going to have to believe in this God and honor the God of Abraham, uh, the God of Israel, and uh, even even un, even even non non Jews could be accounted righteous. They could receive blessings from this covenant by acknowledging Israel and Abraham and the promise that is given to them. And there's 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 and ultimately the seed. Uh, that is going to that is going to ultimately solve the sin problem. Okay. The uh, history marches on here, and then we come to Moses, where we actually see this kingdom sort of emerge in microcosm. Okay. Uh, we have civil structures and religious structures merged together in one nation. Okay. And so the. The, the leader of that nation, who ultimately is a king, David and such, the, the king is actually, you know, uh, he he's, he oversees the totality of life, including not only the civil civil types of things, but also the spiritual. So it's all contained in one kingdom. Uh, priests and kings are 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 you know they're intersecting, and they each have their own. Responsibilities, but now we've, we've sort of merged it into a, a, a common kingdom, um, and so God gives instructions that it's almost impossible to, to you know, the, the, the reform guys try and say, okay, these are these are moral laws, and these are civil and ceremonial laws, but it's almost impossible to extricate them because, and I think that's by design. Okay, there's one kingdom that that governs all life. Okay. And so for a while we see that. Now, of course, that doesn't that model fails to a point. Why? Because they don't have the right king. Okay, they have the wrong king. And so we find in the Gospels that this kingdom is reoffered. Jesus is the king in the midst. And if they would have accepted him, the kingdom would have resumed in a in a much superior way because Jesus would have been the king. But they said no. And so there's a there's a there's a postponement of this kingdom. And then what we find here is there's a, a division again. Civil structures render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, render to God the things that are God. So, so now there's this separation again of ecclesiastical structures and spiritual structures. Now it's a separation of church and state. Okay, And church is not Israel. Okay, Israel is this kingdom. You know, this 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 together idea, this one kingdom kind of thing. Now we've broken it apart again. Now we've got the church and the civil structures running side by side. Here's where I find the most important element of dispensationalism, because it tells us exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, Our responsibility as churchlings, if I can put it that way, members of the church, are to perpetuate the redemptive side of things. Okay, Our mission, our commission, 
is to go teach the nations, baptize them, establish churches, teach them um, to observe everything that's written therein. Okay. Now, my responsibility as a citizen of the civil sphere is also robust. I have to be a good citizen. I have to be a good neighbor. I have to be a good father. I have, you know, all of all of my all of my civil structures. I have to do. But but what we shouldn't we, we can't mix those. Okay, and that's probably to me the most important practical aspect of dispensationalism. The church has one responsibility. The state has another, and they don't merge. Okay, they don't merge until. God brings them back together in the millennial kingdom, and Jesus is the king, and that's when, it, when it's all put back together. So that's that's sort of how I see the structure of of the Bible as a, and, and the storyline of the Bible. Um, again, there's there's other ways of seeing it that that, uh, that you know there's there's a redeemed thread, and so the, the whole theme is redemption, and there's a redeemed people. There's one redeemed people. It starts out as Israel's. Merges, sort of morphs into the church. You know, I don't think that's the point, and and the reason I don't think it is because I think that the, the centerpiece of what's going on in the scripture is is not redemption per se, but actually the establishment of the kingdom, which informs then, uh, I think, the mission both of Israel and of the church, and sort of gives us the distinctions that we have here. I I didn't do it justice because I, I teach a whole course on this. You know, it takes me 30 hours to go through it. But that's sort of it in a very, very, very short nutshell. Um, a ton more that can be said, but uh, I'll leave it open for any questions you might have. But we did. He said, and I, I just sent you uh, his notes from right. that. And if you want to listen to the audio lecture, we've got that. So, so Adam, he said, said Noah, he said Abraham, he said Moses. And then you get into the, the New Testament, right? So that's five. Well, yeah. Remember, I, I there, there's Adam, but remember, there's there's two with Adam, oh, sort okay. of. You know, there's Adam and his innocence, and then Adam and his fallen state. So, so pre and post fall Adam, uh, then Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then the church, and then finally the kingdom would be the last. So that's what we mean by a dispensation. It's a, it's a, it's. It's, it's this window of the program. We t- probably the best way to think of it is like an administration, of like a presidential administration. We talk about the Obama administration, the Trump administration, Reagan administration. We're not saying it's a wholly separate government, but it's sort of a window of how that government is functioning for a period of four or eight years. So that's that's what we mean by a dispensation. It's it's a, it's a way that God is governing His universe. During the, these particular windows uh, in the in the in the, uh, in the kingdom program, I feel like I said almost nothing. But <laughs> it's it's really something that takes more than twenty minutes to, to go through. But uh, but if you have the book and hopefully you read that and. At the end of the millennium, it says that the devil would or Satan would be loosed for a short yes. period. What exactly is that going to be like? I mean, well, at the end of at, at the end of the tribulation, this this horrible period uh, when just so much carnage is going on. At the end, Jesus comes. Right. He sets everything straight. He separates the sheep and the goats. Uh, the goats are you know sent outside into outer darkness. They're not. Brought to the feast, uh, so they're they're consigned effectively to the pit. Uh, Satan himself is actually bound during this period. Uh, it doesn't mean that sin goes away entirely. Okay, they, the, the, a lot of people get into the millennium in their natural bodies. All those people that survive the, the tribulation and come through as as believers populate the kingdom, and they've got natural bodies and they start reproducing. They have a bunch of mm-hmm. bunch of kids and grandkids and great grandkids. Thousand thousand years. There's a lot of a lot of people, especially since people aren't yeah. dying and there's right. and there's no disease and all that. So so there's there's a there's a radical surge in the population. But these people are not necessarily believers. Uh, they're they're born to pray just like just like anybody would be. Um, and so there's this group 
uh, so at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released, and he's got some people that he can deceive. Yeah. And these these individuals apparently will join him in some foolish attempt to overcome, uh, overthrow the king, but it fails miserably. So. In our bodies, those who have died then, what will be our our bodies during that time? Yeah, we we have resurrected bodies at that point, because remember in in 1 Thessalonians 4, that at the rapture we shall be changed. So they're both in that same, so I could have a spiritual body and somebody could have a physical body? Yeah, so yeah, glorified body. Glorified body. Yeah. Apparently, there are some who have glorified bodies and some who have natural bodies. Believers are the dead in Christ don't come back to earth in the kingdom, right? Yeah, we we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That's that's with the glorified body. Well, Jesus did interact with people in a glorified body, right? Yes, you know, after his resurrection, it's possible. So we get to go through walls. <laughs> it's a question. <laughs> Do you think you went through all of them? I go back and forth on that. Well, I, I said that to Dr. McKinnon, and he just poo pooed that to death, you know. And I, what, so, when I talked, when I, one time we were discussing this, and I sort of said, you know, I think you know, he went through all so he really poo pooed that. Yeah, it seems the doors were closed, and then yeah. suddenly he was in their midst. It yeah. seems. Seems like he's yeah. saying. I, I think he's, he, he, yeah. his suggestion was he, he opened the door real quick and walked in. No, no, that's that's what <laughs> but it was locked. That was the whole point. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> People out. He didn't. He didn't buy this going through walls. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask this: When, okay, when I was a child, I'd say I remember Sunday school and talking about Cain and Abel and their sacrifice, uh-huh. and the one was accepted because of the blood sacrifice. Yeah. That's not necessarily true, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's. I mean, uh, Hebrews says it was because it was offered up in faith. Like I wrote, the very first official system, as far as we know, wasn't established. Right, it hasn't been established yet. And I, I was the very first article I ever wrote got published was on that on that topic. And it seems that uh, when when Abraham sacrificed, in fact, the terms that are used are the same terms that Moses is going to use later for a thank offering and a grain offering. So there doesn't say, and, and, and the context is, I'm, I'm thankful for the, for the crop I got. And so, and so he brought, and it would have been a very appropriate offering to bring. Or one brought his best and the other one didn't? Or? Well, now that, that does seem to be an issue because, because Abel did bring the, 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 the best of the first things. Yeah, so he does, he, there is there is an indication that he went all out, but it seems like the critical thing is not so much that one's blood and one's not blood, but rather one is brought in faith and one is not brought in faith. Those brought brought grudgingly, and not the best. But Abel, Abel brings this willingly and, and with great gratitude, and so he brings the very best. So that's that's probably the indication. The faith is what caused him to bring his best, where Cain is grudging, and so there is no indication that he brought his best. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well,